Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Health Care on webtalkradio.net. I'm the host of the program, Dr. Steve Feldman. Today, we're going to be talking about electronic health records. We have a health care system that's very costly. We want to improve those costs, but we don't want to ration care. So where are savings going to come from? Well, we think they're going to come from having a more efficient health system. And how are we going to make the healthcare system more efficient? Well, largely it's going to come through the use of electronic medical records. If we can put in place a medical record system that is uniform across hospitals and physicians, we're going to be able to improve communications between doctors and hospitals, between doctors and other doctors, between primary care and specialists. We'll be able to reduce unnecessary testing. We'll be able to make sure needed tests get done. We're going to be able to reduce medical errors. And we're going to be able to learn from past experience how to improve medical care. Hey, this sounds terrific, but is it all good? One of my colleagues described how there were three major data losses that occurred over a two-year practice that affected um, his practice. Well, to speak to us about the benefits and the potential risks of electronic medical records, we have Dr. Dan Siegel. Dan is a good friend of mine. He's professor of clinical dermatology at the State University of New York at Downstate. Dan's an amazing fellow. He's a clinician, an academician, and a computer expert who treats patients with skin cancer. He teaches skin surgery and computer use to his students, residents, fellows, and colleagues. He serves on the Clinical Advisory Board of Insight, a company that makes electronic health records and practice management software. In addition to being an MD, Dan has a master's in management and policy. He's author of over 90 scientific papers, editor of three books, and has a United States patent. He runs educational sessions on electronic health records for the American Academy of Dermatology. Dan, my friend, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. Thanks, Steve. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, look, um, electronic health records are all the rage. Um, what, are, what are, in the era before electronic health records, what were, what were medical records like, and what were some of the problems um, with them? Well, when I was growing up, the first 19 years of my life were summarized on a little 3 by 5 index card where I, the family doc would come to the house when my mother would call him when I had a fever and a sore throat, he would examine me all over, give me a shot of penicillin, and the note, which I got as a present for his estate when he died, the whole note would read for that visit, uh, URI for upper respiratory infection, IMPCM, which means I got a penicillin shot. And that was perfectly adequate. But yep. as the lawyers have grown in power over time, we, we've been forced to document more. So we have to cover lots and lots of stuff. And to get paid for what we do, we have to cover lots of stuff. 
So medical records become longer, and people in some cases write you know, cryptic shorthand notes. Other times they write little novels. But records have gotten voluminous, and you had to be fast with a pen or eloquent with a dictation machine. I remember when I was a dermatology resident in training that uh, one of the practices in town, um, there were paradermatologists, and it was the time of the first Gulf War, and one of these dermatologists um, being um, in the reserves got called up off to, you know, Iraq, and um, the other one wanted to take a vacation after some months, and he was desperate, and so he let me take over his practice for a week, and I got to see his notes, and I don't think they were on three-by-five cards. I, I think they were actually... It was already a time when there was probably greater um, um, documentation requirements, so they were on five-by-seven <laughs> index cards. <laughs> and uh, I can remember seeing an acne patient, and the last note, you know, he had you know, typed in on this index. He typed the notes. He typed in something like INCTCN, which I immediately knew that at the previous visit that he had increased the tetracycline to see if the patient's acne would get better. Um, so you blame, at least in part, the, the the need to have longer notes and things on the lawyers and the bean counters, um, and not so much you think that that's a benefit to patients. Well, I think it's less of a benefit in that we wind up getting a lot more chaff and less wheat. Uh, for example, when I was resident you know, Dallas VA, we would have a note from someone that would say simply psoriasis, refill VA mix number two. And to somebody who read that note, you knew you had somebody who came with psoriasis, you know, common skin disease, and they were pretty well controlled by a simple mix of a cortisone cream and a tar product. It worked well, they were stable, and that's what you really needed to know. Yeah. In contrast, somebody who had a severe disease with a lot of systemic symptoms might have two pages of notes, which you knew you had to read because somebody took the time to write it, now you read it. But with the requirements nowadays, there can be so much information on every note that you don't know what's important. And the whole note may be so detailed that what may have been important in the past is no longer important, but you can't be sure. Whereas those notes you told you, the patient had you know, two years of notes on one side of a page, it said, yeah, they're pretty stable and they're well-controlled. So I think things have changed, and I do blame the bean counters. Yes, well, you know, uh, the bean counters got to do their thing. I... I um I remember not wanting to go to jail, you know, and, and, and wanting to make sure that what I documented in the medical record would um, not only be good for taking care of patients, but also would, you know, make sure that it justified um, what we were charging and everything. And I was so pleased when they came out in 1997, when the federal government came out with specific bulleted guidelines telling you exactly what elements you needed to have in your notes. And I'll tell you, I, I took to these right away. And, you know, my notes had all the information laid out exactly, you know, the way the bean counters wanted it. And um, I can remember seeing return patients picking up the chart and going, I, I I can't find the information I need to know what I saw this patient for the last visit. It was just it was there, but it was buried in in all the other stuff that really wasn't all that helpful for patient care well, purposes. Exactly. Now you know if the people listening to this who aren't doctors thinking you just talked about bullets and elements, I should clarify you know, that those bullets are little dots that go next to words like left arm, right arm, head, lids, lips, chest, back. And you have to say something about all these, even if they're not critical. 
Others are important to look at, but documenting that you looked at it and they're normal isn't critical for care, but it became critical for documentation. So all these things that we call the elements of the exam became critical to capture, but it didn't help transmit information. And what has happened, I think part of the evolution of the record, is people realizing we had to capture all this. Many people made templates. We have checklists and other things. And the checklist was pretty easy because you had yes or no's, and if it was a no, there was nothing else. If it was a yes, there would be some comment for the abnormal things. And that became okay, but then, you know, with the evolution of EHRs, and my EHR experience goes back to 1985 when I co-wrote a program that helped me generate surgical notes and letters and bills. It's a very yes. simple program. For our, our listeners, when you say EHR, you're talking about electronic health records. Electronic health record, which I will use probably in this discussion interchangeably with electronic medical record, though there are some subtle differences. There's a whole bunch of initials and acronyms that we could spend hours just discussing that. But I think the most important initials of all, think of EHR and EMR is the same. For the listener to think of is something called CCHIT, and the other one is ONCHIT, which are respectively pronounced CCHIT and the ONCHIT. Now, some people will wonder what that is, and basically CCHIT is the Certification Commission for Health Information Technology, which likes to be called CCHIT because some people began to mispronounce CCHIT with a soft CH sound. <laughs> now, the, the ONCHIT stands for the Office of the National Coordinator of Health Information Technology. That's Dr. Blumenthal, who is the brother, interestingly, of the Attorney General of Connecticut, who's running for senator there now. And he likes to be called the ONC because ONCHIT can also be mispronounced with a soft CH sound. But the CCHIT is a, is a commission that certifies records. And what that certification means, it's like you get a merit badge being a Boy Scout. It means that the program has gone through a whole menu of tasks and it does them smoothly. There's no surprises, no secrets. It just makes sure it can run the dash in under 10 minutes, that sort of thing. Yeah. It just checks to be sure it can make criteria. And if you meet those criteria and you've paid your large fee to this quasi-industry, quasi-government body, you get a merit badge that says CCHIT certified. Neat. Well, let's start a little before that. Yeah, computers have changed our lives. I, I um, did my Ph.D. thesis on a, a word processor. I don't know how I got through college with a typewriter. Um, you were saying that, that you wrote some programs early on before more comprehensive electronic health records were in place um, to help you with surgical notes. That sounds like a, a time-saving, um, valuable way to use um, electronic resources to make medical care go smoother. Oh, it definitely was. And the nice part of it is for a lot of surgeries, you're doing something that's repetitive, at least the documentation of it is, and the things that vary, the size of the piece of tissue you're taking out, how wide it is, how deep it is, how you process it. They can be variable, but generally the variations are, are a range of numbers. And many of the variations, the word variations, can be very few. So, for instance, when we do something called Mohs surgery, we map tumors out. When you have the cancer all out, you have a wound. And sometimes the wound can heal by nature. And if you let nature heal it, there's a half dozen ways you might dress it. If you close it up, well, you have to pick from sutures to put underneath, sutures on the top, and you have a, a length of the suture line, and then you dress that. Or you do what are called skin grafts, where you borrow skin from elsewhere in the body, or skin flaps where you move skin around from a nearby area. 
but all of those can be run down a pathway. If you can almost fit, think of like a diagram or set of directions, you know, when you go on, you know, like on you know, like on the mapping programs online. So it's easy to write a program that lets you essentially click and feed your way down this pathway. You know, very simple, and it was a time saver for what you'd otherwise be doing. And, I, and Dan, I don't know what your handwriting is like, but some some folks, boy, they were challenged. So we've gone from from perhaps handwritten index cards to to helpful computerized templates where you could um, fill in the blanks, specify the lengths and things that you would have to fill in for each surgery depending on the specifics of that case. And now we have more comprehensive systems, databases that are designed to capture people's entire medical records, as I understand it. Oh, absolutely. And those, I think, are truly wonderful in that at least the first time around, you can get all the information in there. But our system, again, this is where the bean counters come in, is the evil beings. They're not simply satisfied with letting you capture that information on the first visit. All the things like the medications the patient's taking, the past illnesses they've had, the, the family problems that may be genetic. You have to, to get paid for what you do. You have to rehash that in almost every visit. And some programs just pull it forward and automatically fill it in, and you can update it. But the fact that it has to show up in every note, instead of saying, gee, we have this electronic record, and I can simply click on the family history and open it up or the surgical history and open it up and see what went on in the past, I've got to document all that stuff each time to get to a certain level of payment if it's medically necessary. So now you get all this information showing up. So you may have what would print out at two or three pages or scroll down, like trying to read you know, the New York Times in the morning on your computer. You keep scrolling and scrolling to see it all. And you have to decide what's important and what's not. We're, we're going to have to come back in a little bit to payments and, and the bean counters and the, and the government regulators. Let's talk for a moment about specifically to patient care. What are the advantages and disadvantages you know, of, of some of the, the new developments in electronic health records? Well, let, let's take the upside first. Excellent. Okay, if we take advantages, imagine this. You go to the doctor's office, and in the ideal world, the record in your office talks to mine, and it talks to the internist, the cardiologist, and everybody else. So when I see you, it would be wonderful if they talk, and I could get all the information from the other visits without having to make phone calls and get faxes and get what the patient remembers. Oh, you know, basic things like I'm seeing a patient, and they're on a medicine, and I have to check their blood count. They may have had a blood count at their family doctor a few weeks ago, and it's in a different, it's on a different index card in the old days. Right. Um, but now, conceivably, we could have a system where I would have access, which would save people from having duplicate testing. Um, that, that, that's certainly upside. And what's real neat is if you're on a couple of medications and I want to give you another one, if I decide to pick a medication that might treat your problem, let's just say that one of your other medications interacts in a bad way with that medicine. The computer, as soon as I pick that medicine, will probably come up with a red screen and say, warning, potential interaction between this drug and that drug, and then suggest alternative drugs. So there's a lot of safety built into it, assuming we've got all the accurate data. I mean, that's another positive. Also, if you've got a condition that needs frequent follow-up, at the end of the visit, I can say, you know, you know, set up a visit in three months, and the computer will know to send you a reminder two weeks before the visit by your preferred route, be it a postcard, an email, a fax, whatever way you want the information. I mean, there's lots of neat things, and if 
you're traveling and you, you get a kidney stone in California, the doc in the emergency room can possibly or probably get into your internist records and find out what your medical history is. So there's lots of neat benefits that are all potential benefits. Yeah, that, that sounds super. Um, similarly, I guess if, if you'd had a heart attack and supposedly medical science had proven that taking a beta, bl a beta blocker, a, a medicine that helps control heart rate, would help um, keep you living longer, uh, maybe the computer could even remind the doctor about potential things, preventive tests that you may need or would, you, might be appropriate for you to, to flag that, remind the doctor and the patient to have those things done. Oh, right, and that's another aspect that's positive, something called decision support systems. And for the, the listener, what's real neat is that when you go in and the doctor checks your blood pressure, let's say you have high blood pressure and he checks your cholesterol and lipids, there are programs where you can plug in the numbers and you'll get suggestions as to what the best combination of a statin for your lipids and a blood pressure pill are. And in dermatology, we have something called you know, logic, you know, visual DX, biological images, that helps you make decisions by looking at pictures. Lots of neat features that can help enhance our ability that can be linked into medical records. I mean, this is all, this is the good stuff. This is the flag-waving stuff. That's great. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Fellman. We're talking today with Dr. Dan Siegel about electronic health records. And we've just been talking about all these neat things that they can do. Dan, this sounds like the greatest thing since the development of antibiotics. Well, much like the development <laughs> of antibiotics, which have developed resistance and superbugs, there's a dark side, too. The dark side. The dark side of the force. And what, 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 do, what do I mean by dark side? Well, one thing is that right now when I see a patient with a paper chart, I can look the patient in the eye. I can scroll some notes as I'm going. I can make eye contact. I'm with the patient. We're bonded together. With the electronic record, I've, if I'm doing it in the way it's meant to be done, I'm looking at a computer screen and tapping away at a computer screen while not looking at the patient. So I'm missing the patient's nonverbals. I'm missing their anxieties. I'm missing their concerns. You know, in our office, um, you'll have an exam table in the room, and on the other side of the room, you'll have a table with the computer on it, and you'll have your the, the doctor's chair in between so that when you're looking at the computer, you have your back to the patient. And, and that just, it just strikes me as about the worst thing you could do for establishing a good patient-physician relationship. It's, it's real bad. It's funny that bad. you mentioned that first. Uh, well, that to me is one of the worst things because that's directly interacting with the patient. Now, I will sit down with a little laptop, and again, you, know, you can have rooms that are hardwired. I have a wireless laptop, and I can sit side by side with the patient, show them what I'm doing. And some patients are impressed by the technology, but I'm still losing that face-to-face, side-by-side interaction. And then there's, of course, the concern if the system goes down, I've suddenly lost access to all my data. I can't just turn the page back and forth in the chart because the computer's not working. It's dead in the water on me. And no matter how good computers are, I think we're still all beta testers, you know, for Microsoft. And we can have bad days like that, which are, you know, hopefully avoidable, but not always. And they always seem to happen on the busier days. Yeah, the, the index card system didn't go down very often. It's true. In fact, there was a paper in the New England Journal a while ago by Dr. Jerome Groupman, who is well-known as a writer in the New Yorker magazine, in addition to being an excellent doctor. And he talks about how one oncologist friend went from electronic records back to index cards he used to keep in his pocket as a resident to keep track of patients 
because it was the only efficient way to make rounds in the morning or else he'd never get done. So there are dark sides. And then, of course, another dark side that's hot in the news these days is privacy. As we look around and once these systems all talk to each other, while it may be wonderful to get the information when you're in a hospital, you don't want the kid down the street getting your information and posting it on Facebook. And that's a worry because, after all, We've watched as the VA system has lost hundreds of thousands of names of patients and doctors, and many, many health plans have misplaced or lost and made these things public accidentally. So as these become more prominent, these cyber criminals will probably spend more time and more effort going after this information to do whatever dastardly things they can get away with doing. Well, I guess people could have stole the index cards too, but... It's just not the same as being able to capture on a USB drive hundreds of thousands of people's entire medical record. Well, that's just it. You know, if you if you were a doctor or you wanted to fake yourself off as a doctor by putting on a white coat and a stethoscope, you could sneak into medical records in a, in a medical school or a hospital, and without much difficulty, you could probably walk in medical records and you can read a chart or two or three. But if you try to walk out with a wad of charts or a pile, Somebody would catch you, somebody would see what you're doing, and you'd be called on it. With electronic transfer, you could transfer you know, the entire Manhattan phone book in a matter of seconds, and that could be used for very nefarious purposes that we would not want to see happen. Now, I mentioned poor handwriting. Poor handwriting can lead to pharmacists misreading a prescription and stuff. Fortunately, the electronic health record does away with that kind of problem completely, doesn't it? Not really. It does away with most of it. I'll give you an example. I say not completely. My handwriting, which I believe you may have spoken of disparagingly before, has been described by my seventh grade social studies teacher as Chinese chicken scrawl. So the electronic health record prescription writing component is great, except that, for instance, many programs you'll print out prescription, and I will pick a drug such as we use in dermatology, a cortisone cream with a dose and a vehicle. This is important. If I want a cream, I want a cream in an ointment, gel, or solution, but the prescription tells me it's going to print it, but when it comes out, it has the drug name and concentration, but doesn't tell what the vehicle is, whether it's a cream or ointment or lotion, huh. so I have to write that part in by hand. So there are some downsides. I, I hear that even worse... Uh, you know, all you got to do to pull up the, the the drug is to click a a, a bubble, um, but you click the wrong bubble, you know, you get the same kind of problem. You get the wrong drug out, and uh, oh, you can get the wrong drug plus the time. One, I, I'm not mentioning program names. I don't want to wind up getting either of us in trouble. But one program I, I've used and aware of uh, to generate a simple prescription, it's somewhere between 19 and 25 clicks. Wow. I can write war and peace in less time <laughs> than I can generate a few prescriptions. So th there are some flaws. Now, one thing that is discussed is, as we mentioned before, it would be nice if the drug interactions came up. And one of the, the issues is something called electronic prescribing or e-prescribing. And what's real neat with this, if it's ever made to work, is that you can generate that prescription, and it automatically would go off to the pharmacy. So there's no paper intermediary involved, and the patient would just have the drug waiting for them. And that's the ideal. Unfortunately, in the real world, the small pharmacies, the private mom and pop, the backbone of America, many of those haven't spent the money to receive electronic prescriptions. And the big pharmacies that have set up, often the person who is working that day doesn't know how to download it from the system. Oh, my. So, that, so that's that's interesting. 
because we're there now. I mean, our our uh, I work at a major university. Our university system has a electronic health record, and we can e-prescribe and just with a couple clicks send the prescriptions to the directly to the pharmacy. It's it's kind of cool if it works. It's, it's kind of cool, but you have to know the right pharmacy because the patient may you know may have insurance that you know that insurance allows a certain remote pharmacy. And if they're there for their refill of something they're on long-term that they get every month, it's no problem. But if they've got an acute problem that they've got to go to the local pharmacy and the prescription has gone off to the remote site that will mail it to them, then you've got a problem when they show up at the local pharmacy and say, where's my prescription? So these are still some of the bugs that haven't been smoothed out. So they save a few minutes here, but you make up for it when you're on the phone for 10 minutes with the pharmacist trying to correct the problem so the patient doesn't get charged by both the local pharmacy and the remote pharmacy. So it's not as slick as it could be. So are we getting to the point where my electronic system that I have for the, the patients in our clinic is going to talk to the, the patient's family physician's uh, rec- electronic health record, which is going to talk to the hospital's records so that as a patient moves from place to place in our system, the records will follow them? In theory, we're heading toward that. In reality, we're still a long way away from that. There is a standard that lets records talk to each other called HL7, Health Level Interface 7. And the simplest way to explain that is to think about when you go browsing the web, it doesn't matter if you're using you know, a Mac or a PC. If you open a browser, you click on a PDF file, it opens up in an Acrobat reader. If you click on a music file, it opens up in iTunes, a Windows Media Player, a Real Player, but it's pretty much automatic because all of these are, you know, they, they link together and talk to each other. The problem with a lot of EHRs is that although they use this interface and they've passed the CCHIT examination, the reality is the interface between any two of them doesn't exist in a formal way. So any companies always have to interface to another company for lots and lots of money, but there's no smooth interface yet. So it sounds like these are like a road, and you can drive any kind of car on the road. The road will handle any kind of car. But right now we have a series of roads that, that aren't quite connected. Well, a series of roads not connected, and it's like you look at all, it'll take all the cars, but if one car breaks down, it can't borrow parts from another car because they're not compatible. One of the problems is also has been the level of money spent on developing electronic records. And again, the listener can, if the listener on the computer can Google and look at, just Google electronic health record development and also Google electronic game development, and you'll find that in a given year, 10 to 100 times as much money is spent on developing electronic video games as is spent on developing electronic records. It's a bigger market. There's more money in it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the VA. They have a large system. Is it conceivable that they just need to up that system, I don't know, 10 to 100-fold and cover all Americans with one existing medical record system? Well, that was offered. The VA system, the CPRS, which was a homegrown system that was actually an underground movement to develop this initially for the VA, actually said, gee, it works, was good for its time. But it really hasn't been kept up to date. And for the listener to think of this, it's sort of like if you use a word processor like Microsoft Word or Open, you know, Open Office's Word as a way to keep your record. 
The only difference between that and the VA record, though, is the VA record doesn't let you search through the file, so you have to look manually. Wow. Yeah. And that's oh. being the searchability seems like one of the huge advantages of these electronic records. I mean, just think of the research potential if you can glean through Americans' records and find out what drugs work really well, identify rare side effects of drugs, find out what procedures work best to treat different things. It seems like the the potential for learning would be enormous. Oh, the potential is tremendous, but the practical is lagging. Because that same VA record, for instance, if somebody is real sick and multiple doctors are seeing them, instead of putting your own observations in, you may take the last note, copy the whole thing, paste it into your note, make a few little changes. So it's hard to tell what's original. Massive amounts of data to walk through and look through. So you really, you can't, you can't find the needle in the haystack because the haystack has grown massive. And speaking of mining this, looking around for treatments, the other side, of course, is that the government, you know, the government wants to be in everybody's bank account, everybody's information. Imagine if the government has access to all the records and they can look and they can see what's going on. And maybe they will go into record and say, aha, I'm in Steve Feldman's record here and I find that, you know, Steve's, you know, Steve's mother has a history of something, so Steve has a genetic risk of getting that, so maybe we'll make this available to insurance companies not to insure him. So there are negatives to making all this data too available because the protections that need to be there aren't in place. You know, the, the scenario you, you describe where the government's going to tell an insurer not to insure me or to charge me a higher rate, I, somehow I'm not too worried about that. But, you know, I think there is a tendency for people to think that other people are, are doing or going to do bad things. And I remember seeing an email from a colleague, I think it was earlier this morning, saying, you know, the, the government has this zeal to get electronic health records in place. The only possible reason is because they want to use it to ration care. Um, do you think that's, that's part of what's going on? Well, I'm not sure rationing care is as much as looking at trends and trying to look at trends and say, aha, something is being done more often than it used to be, so there must be a perverse incentive to do it. So the government does have an ulterior motive. Remember, the whole mandate to have electronic records began in 2004 when then-President Bush announced a 10-year initiative to make everybody electronic. And here we are in the middle of a war over in, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know, all these other things going on, and the president comes up with an initiative on something that he's never been known to be the authority about or passionate about. So whether you like him or dislike him, the one thing you can say is obviously the lobbyist got to him and said, go ahead and do this because there are you know, industry-side people who will benefit from all this happening. You've got companies that are the big players. You've got the lawyers who see this as a field day with capturing more data that can be used for or against various things. I think that was a lot of the motivation on here. Well, yeah, I guess that's one of the dark side ways of looking at it. I have the sense that the president, as he describes his desire to bend the increasing cost curve down, really does think that we're going to, by having electronic records, um, identify ways of treating people more cost-effectively, uh, eliminate waste, eliminate, as you said, some of those medication interactions that lead to, to, to bad outcomes and higher costs. So it, it seems like there may be a, a light side and a dark side um, to the government's efforts. Oh, 
Absolutely. The problem is that I'm not sure which side of the force is going to win. Yeah. And I'll give an example of what I mean by that. One of the things we look at now, what I call quality measures, and we have these continuous quality improvement measures. An example of one is doing smoking cessation counseling. Yes. So if, you're, if you come to the VA hospital where I spend a day a week teaching residents and you see your primary doc, he may say to you, you know, Mr. Jones, are you going to stop smoking? We have medication and counseling that we're happy to offer you to help, you know, improve your breathing and extend your life. And the patient looks at the doctor and laughs and says, no way. You know, I love my smokes. The doctor then hits a button and a paragraph prints out talking about how smoking cessation counseling was offered, how medications were offered, and, you know, another two or three paragraphs of text relating to this pop up. So the doctor has then done a quality measure. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't change anything. But he's done a measure. It's put more paper or, you know, more information there that doesn't do anything. It's just more stuff to wade through. So if, if, but if they do that for 100 people, might they get two or three or 10 or 20 more people to stop smoking? So maybe it is a, a good thing that they're doing that at every visit for smokers? Well, you might get a few to stop, but they, they, I, I'm not aware of data that supports that that's very effective. The question is, you know, how good is it? How useful is it? Yeah. I mean, when you look at screening, like for breast cancer screening, there's, there was a big controversy a year ago about whether or not women should have mammograms every year or every other year. And, you know, the, the radiologists who make money doing mammograms wanted to keep it every year. A lot of the women's groups supported that. And when you look at the data, if you look at one study that I think mammogrammed some women yearly, others only once every five years, they found more cancers in the group mammogrammed every year than the group mammogrammed only once every five years, meaning that five years later they had less cancers than the other group. Why was that? You know, we would probably find little things that may have come and gone. We don't know the answer to that. We may be over-screening. We may be overusing technology, and we don't know the answer to that yet. And with so many vested interests from industry, insurance companies, government, it's hard to tell where truth really lies on all of this. So I think we have to maintain healthy skepticism. It sounds like um, the electronic health record is like a piece of steel. I mean, you could use it to to make a hoe and grow things, or you can use it to make a sword and kill things. Uh, how it will all work out in the end is hard to know. It's hard to predict right now. I, you know, again, and I'm someone who I've, you know, personally, I've been fully electronic in my office since 2006, 2005 now. And I've been electronic in some form or other going back to 1986. So, you know, I'm passionate about this. I'm a techie, but I try to look at the practical side. And I think the government's mandates have gone ahead of the both the adoption and the practical availability of the technology. Well, Dan, I appreciate your time this evening. Um, it's the end of our show. It's a great opportunity for, um, for you to give our listeners any thoughts you have Final thoughts you have about this issue or any other issue, points, suggestions you have for how patients can have a better health care, better health care or a better health care system? Well, I think that patients should probably look into having a personal health record. I think Google and Microsoft both author, offer personal health vaults where you can keep your own information because you should be the most reliable holder of that information. I think whether or not your doctor uses an electronic record is probably less important than how current your doctor is, whether they keep up on things, how good a doc they are. I think we will see electronic health records. I think we will probably be very electronic within 10 to 15 years.
but I don't think by 2014 that everyone's going to buy in as enthusiastically as both President Bush and later President Obama said we would. So I would say, you know, eat healthy, drink healthy, and make a good attempt to keep your own records in a logical manner. That'll be the best thing you can do for right now. Excellent. You know, before I let you go, I want to know just a little bit more about your concept of personal health record. Are you thinking of a manila folder with all your lab tests, or are you thinking of something on a USB drive? Oh, I'm thinking of something that you can put in a USB drive, but should probably live on the Internet in some very secure site that you have secured with a password that might be a phrase or a, a line from a song with a couple letters changed, something that's hard to break, so that if you wind up in an ER somewhere far from home, you can log in, you can give temporary access, and they can look and see all your medications. It's all there to be shared, but you're responsible for keeping it up. I think personal responsibility in our society is important, and it wouldn't be unreasonable to say you should keep up your own medical record, you should have your blood type, your medications, your operations, all of that listed on there. And, and, and that's and, available now? That's have, available now. Do you have patients who are doing that already? I encourage them. Not all of them do it. I think most of them are not doing it. But you have some who are. Some are. That's awesome. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for being on the show this evening. My pleasure, Steve. Happy to do it again. Like so many other things in our healthcare system, electronic health records have their ups and downs. Electronic records are a powerful tool that can be used to enhance patient care, to save time in the office, to improve treatment outcomes, to learn better ways to care for people. I mean, when we have this enormous database showing how people are treated and what happens to them as a result, we'll be able to tailor treatments much more effectively. And this is probably only scratching the surface when we think back to what our lives were like without computers and how they've become a ubiquitous part of our lives. I imagine that that the role of computers and electronic records in our healthcare system is really at its infancy. It's going to do and change how how we're treated and, and how we get our medical care. It's going to be a very, very powerful tool. But like all sorts of other powerful tools, there are going to be risks. I mean, what are doctors going to do for patients when the light goes lights go out and the electronic records aren't available? Or simply when the computers fail? or if data are lost, um, not to mention the concerns that that our records will be targets for criminals or people who, for one reason or another, uh, think they can gain an advantage by having our medical records. I think Dan makes clear that at least part of the solution, like so much else in healthcare, may lie in personal responsibility rather than having some company that responsible for everybody's electronic medical records, we can carry our own data individually. We can protect it. We can make sure that we have it with us when we go to the doctor. We can carry around a paper backup if we want to. We may not be able to secure our individual data as well as the Defense Department can, but heck, if we're just carrying our data alone, it's not going to be nearly as big a target as data on hundreds of thousands or millions of people would be uh, when all that data is stored in one location. As Dr. Dan Siegel says, you can do this today. You can bring your medical records with you electronically for your doctor to access and keeping a paper copy and bringing that too, especially with the medications you're currently on 
any allergic reactions, thing you've you've tried in the past that may have or haven't worked. All that is great information. Well, on our show next week, we're going to be discussing relationships between drug companies and physicians. Our guest is going to be Lori Riley. She's vice president for policy and research at Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. On the show, we'll explore the contributions of the pharmaceutical industry to patient health and the challenges of assuring that the pharmaceutical company's interactions with healthcare providers are ethical. Thank you for joining us today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. I hope you'll take time to rate your doctor at the website I founded, drscore.com. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E. Until next week, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.